Hello, it's Fangraphs Audio, Carson Sestouli, and what follows is a conversation with Fangraphs lead prospect analyst, that is Fangraphs lead prospect analyst, Kyla McDaniel. The conversation that follows begins with a discussion concerning Mookie Betts. Mookie Betts, uh, of course, has received very optimistic projection uh, from the steamer projection system, which currently also seems to be supported by whatever scouting information is available about him. However, that uh, was not always the case. What, I ask, uh, Kyla McDaniel, can we learn from Betts' trajectory as a prospect uh, to help us understand prospects now and in the future? Beyond that, uh, we we examined some elements of McDaniel's Washington Nationals prospect list, of his Baltimore Orioles prospect list, and also consider the difficulties of attempting to analyze the defensive skills of 60 shortstops at once, or roughly at once. That's all to follow. Uh, what will happen before then, uh, before that conversation, as he has in uh, most other weeks, Kyle McDaniel this week has provided a musical interlude. In this case, the musical interlude comes courtesy American alternative hip-hop duo The Cool Kids. The Cool Kids is a song called Basement Party. A song called Basement Party. It's Van Graf's Audio. Thank you. Right past that intersection, make a right at the light. It's the first house on the left hand. Get it, got it good. You made it, I knew you would. We got them drinks up in the back and them chickies looking good. Hold up, here come one. Hey, what's your name, huh? Jackie Brown, yeah, that pop. I got a hey, Jackie Well, will you say it out loud, too? Or will you read the tweet when you're done? Yeah, hold on. Let me, let me finish composing this. A lot of a lot of Cuban stuff going on right now, but I've been on the on the on the on the blower, as they say. Oh, who says that? I mean, I say it. I mean, you put on earphones, you put on the cans, and then you is get it, on the blower. The blower is it the same person who called you old old bean in your chat today? <laughs> yeah, who says that? I uh, I could tell you that a lot of PG Woodhouse characters say that. See, so I don't even know who that is. <laughs> uh, he's the guy who invented uh, Jeeves. You know Ask Jeeves. Jeeves. Well, yeah, Ask Jeeves is based off of. Hold on, I'm composing. <laughs> What are you, Mozat? Friggin' Mozat. I don't know who that is. <laughs> okay. He composed uh, yes. he composed the score to the wire. He did? No. I didn't think so. <laughs> uh yeah, Woodhouse was he's like a, wrote a lot of comic novels and short stories, and he invented the Jeeves character, Jeeves and Worcester. I didn't know Jeeves was like a composed character. I thought it was just like a name that happened so often that it just became like a thing in the ether when people made fun of British butlers. He's really funny. Yeah, he's really funny. Um he is played by, well, there's Fry and Laurie. Stephen Fry. He's played by Stephen Fry. And, of course, you're familiar with Hugh Laurie, I think, uh, most notably in America of House fame. <laughs> you're acting like I don't know who House is now? Come on. <laughs> yeah, okay, so Hugh Laurie. And he and this guy Stephen Fry were a comic team for a long time. And uh, they both they played Jeeves and Worcester together. They're funny. It's good. It's good. I think, I think it's legitimately entertaining watching. You could sit down. It's probably better than most sitcoms. Not every sitcom. There are good sitcoms now. There are a lot of good sitcoms. But it's it uh, it holds up. Uh, okay, so here are the tweets, which Yo. will be th- – th- these should not be for <laughs> for the podcast because they'll be very old by then. No, no, uh, no please uh, – oh, look at just no disclaimers. No more disclaimers. Right. No more meta – no more meta podcasting. Uh, source Cuban catcher Lorenzo Quintana, who was suspended two weeks ago, defected this week with previously reported defector center fielder Guillermo Heredia. 
Oh, oh that's it. Okay. Uh, and then the but, second one is Harry and Quintana were two of three players that were suspended two weeks ago. I didn't say this, but typically it's because either they asked off the island legally or tried to defect and were caught, but it's never said what the reason is, but that's usually what it is. That's kind of a bummer. And then they defected together two weeks later, Quintana's 25 and not subject to bonus pools. Sorry, what is the the threshold, the age threshold for bonus pools? It's 23 or older with five years of experience. So not all 23-year-olds would qualify. But when you're 25, if you're any good, you usually qualify to get out of the bonus pools. And what does that mean, years of experience doing what? It means playing pro ball. So the pro ball in Cuba, I think some guys will play as early as 16 or 17. So if you're like a Puig, like you might have five years of experience before you're 23. Okay. Um, wait, so uh, – okay, so you, you mentioned an interesting thing because we know this. The, the weird thing right about the uh, Yohan Mankata story – I guess there's a bunch of weird things. But one of the weird things is that he, he appeared as though he was just allowed to leave, right? Yes. Which – is not usually a, th- uh, a an action we associate with, well, not just Cuban ballplayers, but Cubans generally. Typically, it's uh, one has to escape, essentially. Yeah, I'm biting my tongue here because uh, I have some information on this front that I am currently writing in a full article right now. Okay, yeah, well, don't, yeah, well, all right, but so, uh, let's work with the information that I have at least, because I think because it's it's still a quandary. So, right? so I'm gonna have to forget most of what I know. Well, yeah. Forget what no no well, yeah that's right no that's a, that's like part of education learn it and then forget forget what you anyway um, so uh, but d- people are still so this is a tough situation though when you ask off the island and get suspended because all you did is ask well yeah to clarify what I said I believe the process now that someone has gotten out legally and people know that that's a possible thing I believe what happens is you get caught defecting and then say well will you let me leave and they're like no you're suspended okay and the, the guy that just got out Guillermo Heredia was suspended for four years I don't know if that's like the typical one but it's usually multi-year I think I've heard six years has been used before also um, and that and so I think it was, well, do you want to let me leave now? And then that's, like, the best way to get a no, like, from your parents. Like, get caught sneaking in your room at 3 a.m. and be like, uh, can I go out tomorrow? Like, they're not going to say yes. Right. Yeah, right. The um, There was a great Cuban shortstop. Um, was he from Nantucket? <laughs> no, but uh, – <clears throat> He, um, there's, you can see, he never played, he never played on, in the States. Uh, I mean, maybe he did in like tournaments or whatever. But I believe that he was suspended for some time. Oh yeah, he was known as the, uh, the Ozzy Smith of Cuba. There was probably a lot of those. And his name was Herman, Herman Mesa. Um, yeah, not ringing a bell for me. I guess I'm not the, the Cuban historian that I thought I was. He was the hero of Rey Ordonez, uh, over there. Um, and Ray Ordonez would always maintain that uh, Herman Mesa was better than he was. And wow. uh, I don't. I am forgetting the particulars because I did not prepare them for this conversation. But I, uh, I believe that at one point he tried to defect, or is maybe just even suspected of attempting to defect, and received, you know, some sort of uh, significant suspension slash ban that made his life terrible. Well, yeah, well, I was going to say, did you see? We both watched that yeah. documentary. Yeah, we did. We watched it. It happened when we were down in Arizona last time. Uh, I am 
I heard a rumor that there would uh, one of the the current sort of top players that's suspended and stuck in Cuba is a second baseman named Jose Fernandez. Although I guess to further distinguish him from the current Cuban Jose Fernandez, uh, he goes with Jose Miguel Fernandez. Okay. Uh, I was I heard a rumor he might be out, and then I talked to someone, uh, a, a Cuban source today, who confirmed not only is he still in the country, but he is heavily guarded by police right now. And confirmed he's still there. That sounds a, miserable. Uh, yeah, which sounds about like what the the documentary we saw, where it was like, not only did you try to leave and you got caught leaving, but we're going to make life terrible for you because you tried to sort of go over our head. Right. What What is the um, – this may be way outside – certainly outside of my area of expertise. And, and, and uh, to the best of my knowledge, you're not prepared for this question, but do you have any sense of what – uh, warmer relations between the U.S. and Cuba, how that'll affect these things? That is also what I'll be writing about. Okay, all right, all right. Well, let, we'll, we'll it'll be up then. on Monday. So right. it, by the time this podcast is up, it'll be pretty close. Yeah. Okay. So, so in fact, uh, I'll finish writing it tonight. I'm about halfway through it. Right oh, now. all right. So that's all very exciting then. All right. So that's good. And that's that's. Is it, uh, wait, are we allowed to wait? Are we allowed to go to Cuba starting today as people? Can we just go to Cuba now? Uh, from what I have been told, Americans can go to Cuba, but there has to be a legitimate business reason. The more touristy no reason has not been opened yet. Okay. All right. We're in that in-between stage where there's some freedom, but not like, let's go hang out on the beach and sip some rum and smoke some cigars and bring them all home with us. Yeah. Well, I guess there are a lot of other uh, Caribbean islands. Yeah, it's not like we're running out of them or something. Right. Yeah. Have you been to any of those Caribbean islands? Uh, yeah, I have been to the Dominican a bunch of times, but not in necessarily a resort visiting sort of way. And after high school, uh, family did a cruise, did like Grenada and St. Lucia and a couple of them around there. We actually went after they finished taping, but before they had released parts of the Caribbean and we went to the place off the coast of Grenada, which was the island where they filmed it. And like all the sets were up and they like made like a little village out of it to try to get tourists to come. And we were like, oh, this looks like it'll be a cool movie. And then we saw the movie, we were like, oh, this is a really big movie. We didn't realize it was a big movie. Yeah, it wasn't just, it wasn't just like an indie film. Yeah, they were like, oh, that's the, like when you're just sort of coming out of that cove, they're like, oh, that's the part where they sort of hang the people. That We're told that'll be a big part of the movie. And was like, <laughs> we, yeah, uh, uh, CGI'd a lot of it, though. It was basically like one row of houses, but they like CGI'd like an entire countryside on behind it. Right. Yeah, that happens sometimes in those movies, too. Kind of. I just wanted to clarify, it wasn't like some tourist trap. It's like an entire developed city where it's just like Las Vegas. It's, yeah. it's a couple houses. That uh, that area of the world, like uh, I would say probably like 95% of the world, is uh, mysterious to me. Um, but I think I want to get to know it better. Uh, and I think that they speak French in some of those some of those islands, too. You should sing that song, I'd Like to Get to Know You. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, I'm singing that right now. You should sing that song. Yep, we'll, we'll save that. We'll save that. It's good. That has been Kyler McDaniel. <laughs> Lead prospect. Right. Lead prospect, yes. Uh Let's see. Uh, okay, well, so so that's all on hold. That's fine. Here's a question. Wait, did I see you tweet out something about Max Scherzer's bonus? Yeah. When, is the, when did you start doing this? Were you getting all this information that you're tweeting out? Who are you? The problem is it's not long enough. Like, I'd like to write an article about that, but it's, like, uh-huh. literally two sentences. <laughs> like, this Cuban thing is like, oh, this guy got suspended. It was reported this other guy that got suspended defected. It turns out when he defected, this guy came with him. Like, that's not an article. That's all the information I have. You should do an Instagrams post with that, Kylie. 
No, like literally, it would be three sentences. Yeah, like, that's I, fine. That's what that's for. Breaking news, because then you can write sentences? it. Yeah, sure. Talk to talk to Cameron about it. Say just say this to him. I mean, if you don't want to, you don't have to. But say to Cameron, "Hey, next time this happens, should I do that?" And then you could tweet it out, and then everybody's happy. Yeah, no, I guess you're right. I I just feel like the only way to make that into a you know even a full paragraph just to be like he's this old. These are his numbers. Like, and I'm just like, I don't want to do that. No, you I don't want to. I don't want to make an AP report point. about that guy. No, don't not make an AP pyramid style bull bull. Like, I'll give you this much. I guarantee you, Adam. She- I'm not saying I'm Adam Schefter, but I guarantee you, when Adam Schefter breaks a story and tweets it and says full story coming, he does not write the full story. <laughs> oh yeah. I bet he sends notes to somebody and then somebody writes it. Oh, man. We need to get those sorts of people at fangrass.com. I'm not saying I, I deserve that. If there's a story big enough that, you know, it's six paragraphs to like a Moncada, like explaining what's going on thing, that's fine. But this isn't an actual story. So because uh, this, this guy also isn't like a huge prospect. He's just like, oh, he's pretty good. Maybe he's great workout to get a million or two, like, but probably will get less than that. Okay. I want to ask you momentarily about some national stuff. Uh, we, we didn't get to the nationals prospects last week. First, I want to ask you, oh, what, I, I was looking at Mookie Betts' numbers from the minor leagues again, and, and then in relation to, well, I guess who he is, you know, what he is physically, and then also, uh, his draft, uh, his draft place. I think he was taken in the fifth round out of a Tennessee high school. Does that sound right? Yes, I know he was in overpay out of the Nashville suburbs. Oh, okay, so he was in overpay, and I, I neglected to. I want to say it was like eight hundred thousand. I want to say it was like second, third round money and like a later round, something like that. Okay. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> still to that point, the um, uh, bets, regardless of the the bonus, um, omitted from uh, omitted from the 2012 and 2013 uh, top 100 lists for most of the notable. Outlets, I believe, uh, and I think I think we only finished like, only 75th on the base, Baseball America's outlet, uh, top 100 list entering um, entering 2014. Uh, interesting about that. Typically, a I think a, like a guy a hitter ranked around 75th will typically produce four to five wins, I believe, over the first uh, six years of his major league career. Um, if if he were to match his steamer projection for this year, he would have four and a half wins by the end of 2015. Um, I think I don't think there's I don't think it's a surprising thing to say that Mookie Betts in many ways has exceeded expectations. Um, <laughs> Is that your big thesis? <laughs> no, no, no. But I'm, I'm curious. No, I don't think it's surprising to say that. But I guess is, you know, you hope that incrementally the you know. We, people become, we become, you know, we can investigate these situations where there's been an exception, especially since Mookie Betts now is, you know, like per 600 plate appearance, he's like a, he's like a four or five win player at this point, which makes him one of the best players in the major leagues in theory. Yeah, I would say that is completely in theory because there have been guys that – I remember I was looking at Dustin Ackley's numbers and he had a ridiculous half season when he got called up and then like sucked for three straight years. Yeah, that's, and, that's also true, yeah. Which I guess isn't amazingly different than Mookie Betts, actually. <laughs> Although I guess Ackley went high in the draft and Betts didn't, and he's a little bigger. But I mean, I'm just talking, you know, athletic, somewhat hyped second baseman that had a huge uh, rookie year and then right. unexplainably fell apart. Right. And the, well, and the, the curious thing about Dustin Ackley, right, was this guy report was like, "We'll definitely hit." Yeah, that's the only thing we know is he'll yeah. hit. There's no two ways about it, folks. What this guy's going to do is he's going to hit, and by uh, hit we mean he's going to post. 
a, a line at 25% worse than league average. Yeah, and by that definition, I can hit because I would have stats technically if you put me in the batter's box. Right. The, um, uh, so, so what, what happened with Mookie Betts? I, I mean, I guess from, from your point of view, is there anything to be learned from Mookie Betts' trajectory as a prospect? Uh, I would say one thing that can be learned, which is something I've been, this is my, you know, sort of first time ranking all the organizations and kind of going through and doing, you know, the whole prospecty thing all the way through. And one of the things I had noticed, I guess from Mookie, but also from other people, uh, in the past, before I had done this, is that the draft status hangs with people too long. So he was, I pulled up his little player page here. So he posted high on bases everywhere in full season ball. Posted decent power numbers for a guy not known for his power at every level in pro ball. Uh, had good play discipline numbers. Was known to be a fast guy. Played up the middle. Hit for high average. Like he checked every box except he went in the fifth round. And he's five nine. Right. And so I think those two things conspired against him. Uh, and he also like wasn't like a huge showcase guy. He wasn't a known guy. The reason he lasted to the fifth round and got paid that much money is typically that teams know, oh, we like him in the second round, but no one's going to take him there because he's, you know, he's not that kind of guy. Mm-hmm. And there's some uncertainty about his signability because people aren't all over him. So we'll wait until later to give him the money. We would give him if we took him in the second round. We'll take somebody else. That's typically why stuff like that happens as opposed to why does somebody get taken in the second round and then he slips. Um, so he was a, just an under-the-radar guy that you miss on, and sometimes the impulse as a ranker, especially one that does draft rankings and then early minors, and I've caught myself doing this, that uh, I've put together sort of a top 100 or so, and I've bolded all the guys from the most recent draft, so I can go back and look at my draft rankings and just make sure if I had a really strong preference to this guy third and this guy fourth that I don't have him flipped again because we don't have enough info to really change them. Uh but maybe some lower down guys, like if I had a guy, like I think I had Schwarber somewhere in the 10 to 15 range or something like that. We have enough info to say that that was wrong. So I can move him. I don't have to look at the rankings for that. But if there are guys that things haven't really changed for, uh, make sure that I keep them in either the same or close to the same order. Uh, just because sometimes you'll put them in the context of pro players and for some reason they'll look different. Or you'll just, you know, sort of misremember that he has a change up or, or whatever when you're looking at 60 players at once. Yeah. Uh, and so in that way, the draft status sticks with them because it should, but then a year or two out, it probably shouldn't stick with them that much. And the guy taken in the fifth round when you hear like, oh, he's really hitting, and you're like, ah, but he's 5'9", I haven't really heard about him until this year. Now let's be cautious with him. I'd like to be more aggressive with him if, if you know, the performance warrants it and the tools are there. Um, so I'd, I'd like to think that I've done that with some of these guys, like Tyler Danish, who I was against as a high school player. Some things don't look right because his delivery is not quite right. And just like, you know, he's performing. I, this guy looks like a guy that's going to shoot through to the big leagues and do something. I'm going to get on board with this guy now. And I'm forgetting who it was, but there's another guy that I was kind of against as an amateur relative to the industry. Things have sort of not gone the way I thought they would go, and now I'm getting on board. Um, and Tyler, Tyler Danish should be known as a, a right-hander, a right-handed prospect in the White Sox system. He's the one with the sort of a, again, like other White Sox prospects, a sort of like aggressively frightening um, uh, mechanics as a pitcher. Yeah, he's he's short, right-handed Chris Sale with less stuff. But the fact that the delivery is so bad it scares people uh, is the notable thing about him. Right. But some, you know. Chris Sale hasn't had any problems, even though every right. indication says that he should. Right. Yeah, so. I guess Chris Sale has gotten to a point, right, where it's like if he broke down now, on the one hand, you could say, see, I told you so. 
But on the <laughs> other hand, to be like, yeah, well, listen, he pitched like four full seasons. Well, it's like the people saying Strasburg's elbow would pop, and so don't take him one-one. Or Pryor's, uh, Mark Pryor's mechanics are actually bad, so don't take him one-one. It's like, well, you were right about both of them in that they were going to get hurt because their mechanics or whatever reason you thought that was going to be, but you were still wrong. They both still should have gone where they went. Right. Yeah. Because uh, Joe Mauer's so big, he's not going to be able to catch. It's like, yeah, well, eventually you were right, and for probably the right reasons, but that still doesn't matter. He's the best player. Right. Um. <clears throat> So wait, so that was with oh yeah, that was regard to Betts. Betts is an interesting thing too, and I, I don't, I don't know if I have the expertise to sort of unpack it, but even still today, with the exception maybe of his contact skills, um, which you know of course are sort of part and parcel with uh, plate discipline because it's in many cases it's, you know you're not getting into bad counts and therefore you're creating more opportunities. You know where you can swing at a pitch that is, is you're able to hit, um, but he he doesn't really appear to have any elite skills. <clears throat> but guys who are above average across the board, there's a sort of um, exponential effect, right, or a sort of snowballing effect, where if you can get a lot of slightly above average tools, and this is the thing that's hard to identify, right, because that you know you see the guy who's average across the board, you're like, well, he's an average player, which is good. Um, but if you're just a, if you're above average anything, maybe that somehow equals more than just slightly above average overall. Yeah, and I think that may be some of what happened with bets, where it was like I'm not going to put a 60 on a guy's future bat tool unless there's years of uh, track record, and that's because a lot of the hit tool comes down to uh, you know have, having the tools obviously, which don't necessarily change that much. Uh, but having the sort of demonstrated plate discipline in games to get to the hit tools and things like that. And the best way to demonstrate that is to demonstrate it <laughs> in a <laughs> right, game. Right. Uh, so if, you know, Mookie Betts was off my radar and I didn't know a whole lot about it other than some guy from Nashville that kind of runs a little bit and can't play short, him hitting well in short season after he signs doesn't do anything for me. Right. And so if you look at his profile, he signs in 2011, goes and plays rookie ball for four at-bats because he signed late, so you get nothing there. Age 19, in his second year, he goes to the New York Penn League and hits well, but has zero home runs and uh, only nine extra base hits. So it's not like it's necessarily different than you expected. And then his third year, age 20, he goes low A, high A, goes insane, and then jumps into the top ten of the Baseball America list for the Red Sox because, like, oh, this guy's performed. Now we've got a track record. We've got, right. you know, at age 20, he was young for high A and raked. He raked in low A before that, and then he raked without much power. And low, he got some money out of high school, so the Red Sox liked him. Like, now we got enough to buy into this guy. And I, I, yeah, I, I guess I'm in that circumstance. I guess what I'm trying to say is, uh, if once you have the the short season performance and you have the, the Red Sox like him and they gave him some money and he's performing, maybe notice him then. Right. I, I guess it's tough in that instance because I would think there's other guys like this where there's multiple years where he's like okay at low A and then he takes off a double or something like that where you can notice it a year early. This one's a little more difficult just because there's no full season ball and right. you know sometimes scouts don't go that deep. So and this may not be the perfect example, but I think there's something to be taken away from it. Right, and maybe the the point is too is that sometimes if you're putting yourself like like you are right now where you're sort of because uh, I think that obviously you. Um, have credentials to to talk about prospects, but you haven't. This is your sort of first um, attempt at you know doing a comprehensive um, series of prospect lists. That 
that maybe what you're sort of what I hear you hear you saying is that at some point you do just have to react to what happens because you know um, you, you a lot of the tools you know you see them and like you said like that's um, that's wasn't overwhelmingly excellent his first you, you know like uh, year and four plate appearances so you know it's not necessarily that you have a lot to go off there. Yeah, and I like I said, if I were to have been doing list then and didn't have him on their list and just had him in the others after his short season year, I don't think you'd really have enough grounds to say I was wrong. Maybe I had him off the list and I should have had him, you know, in the middle of the twenties in the forty group, and and then the next year I would have had him as a fifty or fifty-five. Mm-hmm. That's fine. But if I didn't see him and it's just you know one scout telling me they liked him, or the Red Sox telling me they like him, and there's not a lot of background, then I don't know. I feel like we've run this into the ground, but. No, yeah, that's I, fine. That's fine. I feel, like no, some, I just I feel like something there, and I'd like to think Tyler Danish is an example of not necessarily a guy off the radar because he went in the third or second round, but a guy I didn't like that I was wary of, and he's kind of proven at some level, and it's looking like at this time next year people are going to be on board with him. And I was like, you know what? I think I see some indicators here. I'm going to go ahead and jump on board now. Uh, a person, uh, uh, I should say a pitcher in this case, about whom there appears to be uh, little doubt, at least so far as his ability is concerned, uh, maybe health is is a different question. Is Washington right-hander, Washington right-handed prospect Lucas Giolito? Uh, there's like really that's so delicately like people <laughs> didn't know who you, who that guy is. He, there's like uh, so going through it right. You have him uh, as number one overall in the Washington system. Okay. Yep. He is a pitcher who has thrown roughly zero winnings above Class A. I'm saying exactly zero. Yeah, yeah. And uh, furthermore, uh, he somehow also receives the most promising projection according to Steamer, which usually there's a pretty large penalty. You know, for every level you're going away down from major leagues, you know, there's a pretty strong penalty. And uh, uh, even with that, uh, Giolito is is still like you know by half a win. Uh, yeah, are, are you sure Steamer doesn't know prospect rankings or tools? Because that strikes me as kind of amazing. Like, there's got to be some uh, velocity. Six- well, velocity is part of it. Velocity it does enter okay. in. Yeah. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Because as you say, you would think just projections based off of stats only, there would be some six foot. Because I would imagine they'll look at age. So there must be some six foot high school command guy that had better numbers that project better. If that's right. all it knows. Right. No. No. There's. Uh, I believe that. Um, I don't. I don't know if it's in every case. Probably. You know. Uh, you know, to the degree that it's available. Um, and uh, it would be a question for Jared Cross to answer more accurately than me, who who is the uh, he's sort of the keeper of, of the steamer projection system at this point. But, uh, yeah, I do know that, that velocity factors into it. And, of course, uh, velocity is something that is going to uh, assist Giolito. Because um, he was hitting 95 at age 15. Yeah. Him and Lance McCullers uh, were in the same draft class, and they both hit 95 at age 15. That's promising. Yeah, and it was notable because that's that doesn't happen in every draft class. Right. I, I still remember I was talking to an agent uh, when those guys, I think, were in the summer after their sophomore years, and he said, this draft class has uh, either three or four franchise guys in it. Lance McCullers... Addison Russell. Oh, so McCullers is now in the Tampa system, is that right? 
Houston. Houston. Okay. All right. From Tampa. From Tampa. Uh, okay. He said Lance McCullers, Addison Russell, Lucas Giolito, and Nick Williams. He said those are the four guys. This is after their sophomore year in high school. He goes, every agent in the country is trying to get those guys. They're, they might be top four picks in that draft. Right. And while they weren't the top four picks in that draft, uh, they are all 50 or better on my list. So <laughs> he ended up being pretty right. Right. Picking yeah. them as sophomores in high school. And, and uh, Giolito is, uh, I mean, he just seems like if you were to, well, how about this? If you were to fashion out of uh, thin air a pitching prospect, would would it look a lot different than Lucas Giolito, perhaps minus the, the Tommy John procedure? Yeah, I mean, that's about it. I'm sure people could quibble on the, you know, I'd like the changeup to be more consistently plus, or, you know, I'd like to tweak something about the delivery and make it, you know, a little, a little cleaner, a little more efficient or whatever. But, yeah, as far as size and stuff and feel and consistency and command and, you know, makeup and like it's pretty much all there. I I'm, I just pulled up my sort of top 100 worksheet and I was going to see sort of where he ranked among the pitchers so I could tell you something. Uh, but the only two pitchers I have on his level are Julio Urias and Carlos Rodon, who are both lefties. So he's the best righty in the minors, I think, by a pretty wide margin. Right. And he's pitched one full season. Right. And uh, Urias is what he's like the 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 child the child pitcher uh, in the Giants or in the Dodger system. He was the dancing baby on Allie McBeal, and now he's a left-handed pitcher. <laughs> right. But he was, he, he was just, was he 18 last year or something? It's something stupid like yeah, that. Right. Yeah, right. He's very young. And then, um, and of course, Rodon was a dominant college pitcher. Actually, that's the guy I was thinking of, because I was driving the Jeff Hoffman 1-1 over Carlos Rodon bandwagon, which was gaining steam leading into the spring, and then Hoffman wasn't quite right, and Rodon was even worse. And I was like, eh, it was, I mean, we're still going, guys. And then Rodon, or Rodon eh, finished all right, like flashed the, the the good stuff like twice during the year, but still wasn't quite there. And then Hoffman's elbow, uh, I was going to say snap. I, it's, we'll just say popped. Yeah. His elbow popped. And I'm like, all right, well, now you can't take Hoffman. And so I think I I believe I ended up uh, ranking them Aiken 1, Rodon 2, Hoffman like 7, something like that. Right. Uh, and I'm still, I think, driving the Hoffman bandwagon. But then Rodon signed, and for reasons I explained in his prospect uh, right up on the White Sox list, the premium stuff just came back right after the draft. And it appeared to be sort of a a part mental, part physical, part pitch count, part throwing a lot of sliders, like all of that combined to his Velo just dropped three ticks, and then he stopped doing it, and then it all came back. And I was like, well, if I knew his stuff was going to come back, I still might take him over even healthy Hoffman. But, you know, with him being hurt, that's kind of a no-brainer. And I also would have taken him over Aiken even before we knew, uh, you know, Aiken's elbow thing ended up coming. Uh, so I guess th- that information obviously allowed me to be seen as an anti-Rodon pro-Hoffman guy. And then all that stuff happened. And now I'm, it might even be the pro-Rodon guy. But I, I, I wrote something earlier this week about how I tried to not be the blank, blank guy prospect wise mm-hmm. because I remember the Mets list went up and somebody wasn't in the right spot. People thought Steven Matz was too low. And I talked to some scouts afterwards. I were doing like the top 100. They're like, yeah, maybe move Matz up a few spots, even on the Mets list, move, move him up 10, 15 spots on the top 100. And I was like, all right, I had him seventh. People are mad I didn't have him second. Now I think I have him fifth. And it was like an argument to make him fourth. And I was like, all right. So I'm not saying they had, there was nothing to what they said. I didn't say those people were dumb, but. There may be something to it, but it's also I'm getting different and new information, and so even when the players aren't playing, they're kind of changing as the different information comes in. And I explain the piece. I'm sort of talking to different sets of people to do the top 100 than I do to do the Mets list. So I'm 
technically getting a better sense of all of these players, sort of an industry-wide consensus. Whereas when I do the, the list individually, I think I get a good sense of the tools, but you know, maybe the industry-wide rankings, like a 55 may become a 50 once they start stacking them all up. So there's sort of a, a shifting movement which makes you cling less to your I'm-the-blank-blank blank guy when you realize people start hitting you over the head with, you need to quit being that guy because you're wrong. <laughs> so, right. so I guess I'm, I'm trying to steer clear of that. Which is, so just we're just saying everyone... Relax. It's going to be okay. It's fine. Yeah. I yeah. I still. I think some people may appreciate it. Maybe others don't. In my chat, when people, there was a question today about what do the Cubs do if Starlin Castro, Addison Russell, like all these guys, and I was just like, why are you? I don't know if you're worked up or if you're like literally sweating thinking about this, or you're just kind of curious what I think they'll do. But the fact that we're spending time thinking about this is a total waste of everyone's time. It'll almost. Never works out to where there's too many, you know, good players that a team doesn't know what to do and there's not like a logical trade sitting there. And if it does, then it'll be one of the first times and I'm sure they'll figure it out. Maybe. Well, what a good, I mean, what a good problem to have. Another thing, you know, <laughs> treating it as though it's a huge problem we have to solve, us on the internet need to solve this. So it's like, I think Jed Hoyer and The Webster will be able to figure this out. There's better things to worry about or, I don't know, get yourself more acquainted with your 15th best prospect than, you know, read some Dan Vogelbach stuff than get worked up about something that's probably never going to happen. Eh, maybe it's just me specifically. It just seems like a very internet specific thing, much like the, People always send me sort of like, what do you think about the Orioles 2019 uh, rotation? Here's who I think it'll be. I'm just like, this is the dumbest thing that's ever happened. No, it's not, the dumb, it's not the dumbest thing. But it, people all have concerns, Kylie. Let's well, I think people find their enjoyment and in some terrible cases their self-worth and what their team is doing. And I think when your team isn't good right now, you find it in what your team will be. Sure. Well, there's that, yeah. And then they look to me to confirm those uh, those beliefs, which I almost never do exactly what they want me to because <laughs> I'm busy trying to be correct or, I guess, sanctimonious also. Yeah. Well, yeah, I could say that again. <laughs> do you think, uh, from what you know, uh, uh, of course, the, the wise – because you had mentioned Rodon um, leaving NC State, arriving you know, within the White Sox system – and then uh, sort of transforming back into, if not the best, at least the better version of Carlos Rodon. Uh, that's also a team, uh, with you, largely because of Don Cooper, their pitching coach, and you know, I'm sure other employees, we'll give them credit as well, who have, um, uh, who have, are um, known. We know that Don Cooper and et al. are responsible for helping out pitchers a lot. Do you, do you have a sense that that's a possibility, or is that sort of opaque at this point? Wait, that they have an that Cooper that Cooper could have been one of the reasons that Rodon was able to essentially oh. uh, show I'm, the best version of himself. I'm sure he had input. I don't know if he had sort of firsthand watching a bullpen telling him what to do kind of thing. Also, the way it was explained to me, it was like he threw a lot of pitches and he threw a lot of sliders and it kind of wore on him and there was also a lot of draft expectations. Like it was like understandable stuff that simply getting drafted, taking a few weeks off and, you know, pitching in a more sort of conservative professional way would have sort of taken care of on their own. And then I think it was like, oh, you're throwing 96 again. How did this happen? It's like, well, I'm throwing mostly fastballs and I'm getting proper rest and I'm not throwing a ton of pitches and there's not a ton of expectations on me. Like, it seems like those are kind of, you know, sort of automatic things. You don't necessarily have to have some pitching guru come uh, come down the mountain and tell you what to do. Although they obviously have a good track record of developing pitchers, so uh, 
I'm sure that had something to do with it also. The, I will say I, I watched – well, of course, I, I'm sure I didn't – I watched fewer than many people, but I watched uh, you know several of Rodon's starts last year. And he did, he did throw his slider a lot. Yeah. Yeah. He threw, I mean, it's a great pitch, but, but – uh, It's the moral hazard of college coaching. Right, yeah, because – The players don't get paid, so they have no incentive to try to burn their arm off. And the coaches, this is their entire life. If they win a couple extra games, they might get a contract extension and not have to move and make more money. Uh, Why, you know, they're incentivized to abuse these kids. And these kids, uh, for sort of, you know, makeup and draft stock purposes, don't want to complain. But they shouldn't be doing what the coaches want them to. But they're, you know, I guess MLB and just sort of the culture of baseball incentivize them to kind of not say anything. Uh, another prospect in the national system, another pitching prospect who throws hard, uh, has probably thrown harder in the past than he did this past year, is A.J. Cole. Uh, Cole's interesting. His name appeared, I was recently looking at uh, essentially like a list of guys who throw hard and also don't walk people, which is a good combination of skills to have, right? I mean, typically pitchers who do both those things turn out well. Uh, A.J. Cole did not appear as close to the top of that list as he might have in recent years because I believe his velocity was down a little bit. You could speak to that probably better than I could. But um, he, uh, I think that he was not re- at the very tippy top um, of your list. It, and it appears that there's what? The, he's a bit of a mystery, is that right? And some of it has to do with makeup possibly? Yeah, there's there's never been any like super specific stuff. I know back when he was in high school, there was more specific stuff, which – I guess sometimes it's, you know, this kid's, you know, not the greatest kid or he's kind of entitled or whatever. Um, that kind of stuff can happen to a kid as a high schooler. Not saying that's what happened with Cole. Mm-hmm. And then it gets away from him or he kind of, you know, moves on or matures or whatever as you kind of, you know, eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches on a bus for three years. You become less of an entitled kid. Um so there was some of that sort of buzz on him as a high school kid, which is why he lasted a little longer than maybe his talent would dictate. And then you kind of hear stuff along those lines, not necessarily like immaturity, but just sort of like, eh, it's not quite, it's a little less than some of its parts. It's not really a plus secondary pitch. He's always been super projectable and he'll throw hard and the other nights he won't. And, you know, it doesn't seem like he necessarily has the, you know, the sequence for this or, there's always like something kind of nagging at you that it just feels like he's not going to reach his upside. And he got traded for Gio Gonzalez. I've been, I'm reading the report now. He got traded for Gio Gonzalez in a package in 2011. And then he got traded in a package for Mike Morris in 2013, which kind of gives you an idea of over two years, his star kind of faded and he didn't necessarily get any worse. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just talking in broad strokes, but yeah, he, he had been a sort of low to mid nineties guy, maybe down a tick or two. Maybe the command isn't quite there the way you want it to be. Maybe it's even stuff beyond command, like sort of the sequencing and the conviction with the pitching and all that kind of stuff. And then the off-speed stuff, there's not a plus secondary pitch. And so now it's like, well, then he basically can't be a number three starter. If we're saying the stuff plays down, there's no plus secondary pitch. And now we're talking about a number four starter. And then that's just, you know, it's a little more ordinary in the in the scope of is this guy, you know, is this guy going to be a 50-plus guy that gets his his, uh, his video embedded? Or is he a 45 guy that just gets a link to his video? That's what all the <laughs> scouts are wondering. Oh, actually, would you uh, um, speak to that slide larger? I think in, in your most recent two or three evaluating the prospect posts, you've had a sort of um, a disclaimer. Now you are separating 
40 plus and 45 plus guys. Can you, could you go through that disclaimer for the, in, in audio form now after having done it in print form as well? Yeah, then we'll get the skywriter later. Right. Um, well, you can, you could create a Snapchat of it and send that out <laughs> as well. Yeah, I got my Polaroid out. So yeah. what I was doing is making a grid of all the lists. One, so it's a little easier to do sort of the top 100 or 100 plus or whatever it is, just to have it all in one place, which I hadn't been doing stupidly. Um, but then also I was as trades were happening and you know in some cases waiver claims and things like that trying to keep the list updated as we went and then also as new information comes in on old teams I can move a guy from a 40 to 45 and then not have to you know when I go back to the list I'll see him ranked in the same place but I have to go through his notes and see like oh here's some new notes I should have moved him up so just wanted to update everything I put it into a grid and then I realized for some teams there'd be like 14 guys that are 45s and I'd have them in an order but I was like I feel like we could further break this down and make this a little easier because uh, I'm also thinking when I was looking at the list, I'd like to do all the 50 and higher future value guys on the big list. But then I started looking at the 45, and I was like, this guy's like a really borderline 45, 50. I feel like I should include him. And I was like, let me just make a group for those borderline guys. So if I decide to sort of change the way I want to grade them, I know who the guys are I'm going to slide up a spot. The, you know, sometimes zero, sometimes three guys on a list will qualify for that. Um so I can have that kind of there and then also further stratify different tiers of players so that if I want to do an overall ranking uh, just beyond the list to make sort of sorting stuff later or easier, you obviously want to have them in the smallest groups possible. Right. So I split that up and then obviously the 40 group's even bigger than the 45 group. So that made sense to do a 40 plus to see if I wanted to, you know, like I said, sort of change the way I was doing it, get a bigger 40 group. And then the just missed was so big I decided to make a, or the, uh, the others of note, I decided to make a just missed, which is anywhere from two to five of guys that could easily be on the list, just if you get one more call with, a, with you know, good notes on them. And then beyond that, made sort of honorable mention uh, pitchers and hitters uh, so that I have sort of the others of note broken into three groups, or I guess technically two groups, but then further broke it down into hitters and pitchers just to make it a little easier to deal with for the grid. So uh, eventually this grid will show up on the website in some form or another, and now when I hear a positive thing or I'm talking to a guy, he's like, hey, where do you have, you know, talking to Scott about the Yankees. And he mentions, oh, hey, where is this guy on the Reds list? I'll be like, I have him here. And he goes, you should move him up. I just move him up on the grid and then sort of not have to have it get lost in the spreadsheet full of notes and have to search around and find his little blank on this giant list of things. It just makes it a little easier to deal with. Yeah. I feel like, um, and you have mentioned this before, I think, that uh, you might have be on the spectrum for obsessive compulsive disorder. <laughs> And I don't, I think that, I think that it's manifesting itself pretty clearly at this point. I, uh, I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast before. Uh, I'm a Robino. <laughs> You're a what? Morp. I am a robot. Um, so when I was younger, my sister told me in the last couple of years that when I was younger, my dad would say something to us like, oh, big screen TVs are now affordable. We're going to get a big screen TV. And, and then I would not even announce to the family what uh, my intentions were, but I would walk over to that and be like, where is the latest consumer reports? And he would point to, like, the stack of magazines over there, and I'd be like, thank you. <laughs> and then I would go grab the magazines and disappear and be like, well, what is he doing? And then I would come back, like, an hour later and be like, father, this is the TV we're going to <laughs> yeah, buy. I've done, I've done some research, and it appears <laughs> yeah. as though here are some, here are some scenarios, Dad. <laughs> 
<laughs> I sound like the biggest nerd of all time. But so she said, like, oh, I always knew you'd be X, Y, or Z because you attack that in such a way. And I remember in high school, there was some things I did like that. And one of my teachers, who actually had a fantasy baseball team I would help him with, said that he thought I'd be a lawyer because I was, like, good with, like, analytical decision-making and details and stuff. And that didn't really do it for me. Like, I don't want to be a lawyer. Although, mm-hmm. of course, I applied for law school and almost went. Um, but I realized when I started scouting a lot, the thing that I like, that the thing that's kind of, you know, scratching that itch in my brain is show up to a ballpark, get handed two rosters with 50 players on it, and they said, okay, you've got five days and five games to put those 50 players in order on what they're going to be in the future. Like, that huge task with all kinds of variables and, like, very involved, like, that is the thing my brain likes doing. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because I I think at a post from about – from last month sometime – uh, you had written on the challenges of identifying shortstops or just the, the entire phenomena of understanding shortstops as projects. Uh, sorry, as prospects. I guess as projects too. Um, but it, it's a, I think you sort of invoked that same scenario, right, where you're watching at a showcase, uh, you know, uh, 40 to 60 guys or something all taking grounders. And you said that it's hard not – it's hard for biases – uh, biases not to creep in at some level because guys who have top level athleticism or just you know fantastic hands um, are naturally going to distinguish themselves from the rest of the group. But if you were going to, but the problem is that you're never going to find Johnny Peralta that way. Yeah, right. You got to you got to go watch five games, and by game four, you're like, that guy's pretty. Like he makes all the plays. Right. Like, we knew he could hit, but yeah, he might be able to play up the middle. That guy's pretty good. Right, and and to to the point where we you know we were discussing earlier, where sometimes you know like with the Mookie Betts, it actually just you have to wait for him to do it before you're like, oh, he he can do that. Uh, I mean, it took like six years of Johnny Peralta playing shortstop before, uh, at least before I think that um, you know even a even a, a certain population and also the Cardinals. Uh, you know, certainly the Cardinals were prepared to come around to the idea, like, oh, maybe he is an above-average defensive shortstop, even though, even though to look at it, there's just you just wouldn't think so. Yeah, and I actually just got off a call with a team where, uh, and it happens multiple times on every list. It was my first call with this team, and I mentioned a guy that they've been playing at shortstop that I didn't think he play second base or third base, and they've been playing at shortstop. Like, we've got conviction he can stick it short, and I was like, really? I gotta go call around and see if this guy can stick it short now. And I, and I kind of stopped and I was like, I'm sure someone said that about Johnny Peralta. Like, don't jump to a conclusion. Just well, the Tigers, the, guy... the Tigers said it about Johnny Peralta. They put him in left field. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> and, I was like, yeah, but this guy's like super athletic and seems to like pick up on things pretty quickly. And I was like, all right, I guess. Yeah. Let's, let's take, let's give this guy a fair chance. Let's not just look at his draft status and draft position and just and because he was drafted as not a shortstop and now he's playing short. And just assume he can't do it because this is exactly what I just wrote about. <laughs> so, right, well, so maybe so, take it to heart. Right, but I also see the the difficulties that you know if you're a professional scout and you're seeing hundreds of guys and you you know your job you have to always balance right like the depth with which you're attempting to um, survey these players, but then also like besides the depth there's width like there's a lot of players that you're attempting to make judgments about. Right now, my grid has 658 players on lists, and then I would guess uh, 
a bunch more and sort of the others. So yeah, we're, we're closing in on a thousand guys that I'm like, have opinions about apparently. Right, right. But you know, but the, but if you're called upon to have at least a quick opinion about that many guys, then the chances of being able to delve into, you know, to say, to consider in each case, is this guy the exception? Is this guy the exception? Is this guy the exception? Uh, that I mean that see that is also overwhelming. So you begin to see how how that can happen. Where you know maybe from what from everything we could tell, Johnny Peralta is above average defensive shortstop. But you also see how leading up to that discovery, everything appeared to suggest that he was he probably didn't belong there. Yeah, and knowing the difference is is hard. And looking at the tops of the iTunes charts. I'm not sure we belong there, Carson. No, I don't think so. I'm not saying that we're there. I'm no, we're saying. not. We're neither there nor do we belong there. The um, let me uh, let's see two two more questions quickly <clears throat> um, pertaining to the the uh, the Orioles list which you published. I think what beginning of this week. Yes. Oh, by the way, I just went and counted up all of the others of note. It's already uh, over 400. So I've already gone over a thousand guys. There you go. Um, Jomar Reyes is interesting. Oh yeah. Uh, uh he, you rank, uh, you ranked him sixth on the list, uh, for the Orioles. Uh, I don't know what, where he's been ranked previously. You could, I'll ask you that, ask you to speak to that. I do know that he is currently listed at approximately, uh, not at fangraphs.com, mind you. He's shorter than this at fangraphs. Uh, but he's listed, so far as you know, at 66240. Uh, and for reference, um, Aaron Judge, the Yankees prospect, um, is is listed at six seven two thirty. He's two fifty. Judges, judges, yeah. you think? All right, so so all right, so six seven two fifty. So so Ray is not quite that big, but very close. Although, and, although one Orioles source said he might be six seven. Like they and they know that the taller he is, the less chance anyone thinks he can play third, and like all the questions about contact and stuff. So like they know it's seen as a negative for him to be taller, and they're right. like he might be six seven. Okay, so. and then, and then Stephen Moya. The other, the other sort of prospect of note of that shape uh, made his a very brief major league debut last year after playing for most of the season with uh, the Tigers Double A affiliate. Uh, Stephen Moya six six two thirty listed at that. I don't know if you have any. And all three of them have at least sixty power. Moya and Judge are seventy, and it sounds like Reyes is probably a sixty five. Okay, that's it. I mean, that's just an interesting guy. It's a, but uh, I, I I gathered from no, he's always seventeen right now. He's about he'll turn eighteen pretty soon. And he only got like three hundred grand like a year ago. Like he kind of blew up since signing. He was like available to everybody. And and he he well he got bigger in the meantime, right? Which is something that happens to seventeen year olds. But like he was cheap enough that teams that were paying the penalty for going over in July two still could have signed him. Oh wow. Yeah. So that it worked out for the Orioles. Yeah, because they barely spend any money, so they're not supposed to be able to get anybody. Right, and and yeah, they, they only gave him three hundred thousand. Well, that's uh, quite lucky. Uh, obviously, not uh, not destined to appear in the majors this next year, but uh, certainly uh, that's an interesting size to be. I guess is the idea. <laughs> that was your conclusion. It's well, an interesting shape of that young man. Well, yeah, I mean that's that's a big person who can also make contact with the baseball. I don't know. He struck out fewer than twenty percent of the time, or less than. 20%. Sorry, sorry. Ray is signed for three fifty, so right. not every team could sign him, but it was very close. He yeah, signed- I think one of the first comments on the article was, "So Jomar Reyes is basically LeBron." 
And I was like, I don't know how to answer that, but he's not that far away. Right. Yeah, right, right. Not, not that far away. That's a big person. Uh, uh, research by Chris Mitchell shows that at that age, or sh- shows that like at, you know, rookie level ball, um, if anything is predictive, it's these three variables, uh, age relative to the level, of course, um, uh, strikeout rate or, you know, inversely correlated with, you know, future success and then, and then isolated power. And, uh, uh, yeah. And Reyes already looks pretty good by those three measures. Yeah. And, and then by the actual measurements also. Right. He's a big, big giant person. Uh, last thing about which I'll ask you is the, is to elaborate on or recount and elaborate on where, where it makes sense. The Jason Garcia story for the <laughs> Orioles. It was a really cool, if, if, if no one found it, cause it, cause he is not lit, the top ranked prospect. So if someone was just sort of going through the list, they, they might have missed it. He's ranked, uh, what, 11th, 11th on your list, but it, it's, it's a full, like, you will, it could have been its own article. I was thinking about doing that, but I was like, it fits here. Like, part of it's the scouting report. I feel like I should put it all here. Right. All right. Time. So it's a weird story, but it's a cool one. Uh, if especially if he be well, I guess you know, not not especially if he becomes something. There's a probability now that he'll become something, and it seems you know it's higher than zero. Uh, but yeah, would you go through that briefly? Yeah, so the I guess the background you need is Jason Garcia is a high school pick out of the Tampa area by the Red Sox, was sort of a power guy, like 90 to 95, had three pitches, started, and then as he was sort of getting into full season ball, elbow popped, got Tommy John, but this is in 2013, came back at the end of the year in relief. No, I think it was 2014. He came, got it in 2013, came back in 2014, came back uh, in relief and starting, kind of trying to get some structured innings. And in longer outings would be like 90 to 95, hit a 97, which is a little higher than he'd thrown. And then when he'd come in for like one inning, he'd, you know, be like 93, 97. So it's like, eh, Velo ticked up a little bit, but he's coming off a of TJ. That's kind of expected. Then he shows up to Instructs for the Red Sox, and it is like 95 to 98, hitting 100, and in short stints is like 97 to 99. And they're like, okay, this guy's probably a reliever, because you obviously, you know, would be taking velocity off the table to make him a starter, and he's coming off a of TJ, so we need to sort of limit his innings anyway. And now his Velo popped. This sounds like a really good guy. And so when I'm doing my Red Sox list, one one of their guys mentions, oh yeah, Garcia had a hundred, and just kind of as a throwaway comment, and I was like, oh okay, and so I put him down, and then I make sure that he goes from, uh, he was just sort of a name on there, and then I made sure to put him on the list, so I put him like twenty fifth because they got a really deep list, and then every Red Sox guy after that that I talked to, I'd bring up Garcia, be like, I was told he had a hundred, I got him near the bottom, they're like, yeah, no, I mean it's it's new velo, you know, we'll we'll see where it is, not a whole lot of other you know stuff there yet, um, we'll you know wait and see. Now, what I didn't realize was he had been around long enough, he had to be added to the roster for the Rule 5 draft, uh, which the Red Sox opted not to. Now, uh, and what, Sorry, what's his highest level so far? Uh, only low A. Low A. So is it the minor league? Is it the no. minor league edition well, of Rule 5? You, uh, the Rule 5 draft is both minor league and major league, so it's the same amount of service. I believe for high school players, it's four years uh, after you're drafted. You have to be added to the roster. Um, and so he is in his fourth year because the Tommy John obviously kind of abbreviate or right abbreviate whatever. Um, so he had to be added. If he wasn't picked in the major league portion, then he could also be picked in the minor league portion. So you're like subject to both of them. Oh, okay, oh, yeah, yeah. all right. But if they protect you on the triple A roster, then you can't be taken in the minor league portion. If you're protected on a double A, you can be taken in the triple A. If you're protected at A ball, you can be taken in either one of them. 
But if you protect a guy that's pretty decent at not the triple A level, then it's like asking, please take him. Okay. All right. Uh, anyway, so, so he was left, uh, unprotected, which I didn't realize. And then I heard like late in winter meetings, <clears throat> sorry, somebody mentioned his name and I was like, Oh yeah, that guy from the Red Sox that hit a hundred. I was like, you can't draft that guy. And he's on the triple A protection list. So you have to take him big league rule five. Like this guy's basically throwing like, 10 innings in low A and then through like, I don't know, about 10 in instructs that were all good, but you can't think he's going to stick the whole year. Like, that'd be a waste of time. You can't draft him. And there's plenty of guys like that every year that could hit 100 that just don't get drafted because they haven't pitched at a high enough level or coming off surgery or whatever. So it's kind of a throwaway comment. Uh, it turns out I have now found out what was happening then was the Yankee or the uh, Orioles are in their room going through all these names and someone goes hey this Garcia guy's interesting we have two reports because the Red Sox uh instructs is at their Fort Myers spring training home so you have Red Sox Fort Myers the twins are in Fort Myers also and then the two other teams that they play are to sort of save on travel expenses and um and time to travel and all kind of stuff are the Rays uh, a half hour away and then the Orioles an hour away in Sarasota and in Port Charlotte. So those four teams just play each other in a round basically. So they see each other a bunch of times. And so someone says, Hey, uh, do we have any video of Jason Garcia from when he pitched against us and instructs? We, you know, we have two reports off of one inning and like not a lot of reports from uh, before that. Do we have something to look at? And so the Orioles pull up their internal video from their spring training stadium where the Instructs games were played, and it turns out that they have six full innings of video of Jason Garcia, which for all we know may have been like half of the innings he threw, because maybe it just happened that all of his innings were on the road for just, you know, sort of coin flip reasons, and maybe they just happened to be the games that were in uh, at Baltimore Stadium. So they go through those six innings, and of the 18 outs, he struck out 15 guys. <laughs> and so they're sitting in the room, and like the GM, it's just GM, VP, they're all in there, and they're like... This guy's literally, like, untouchable. Like, no one's even making contact against him. I think he had, like, two ground balls and a pop-up, and then 14 strikeout outs, and then one drop third strike. And it was, like, facing legitimate prospects, like Chance Sisko, who's an advanced bat. It's number three on the on the Orioles list. Now, it's mostly minor leaguers. Like, probably double A is, like, the highest sustained level for these guys. But it's, like, he, like nobody has those kinds of numbers, even in a short stretch in double A. So, like, this guy's, like, in a short stint, demonstrated he's that good. And so the Orioles guys are telling me, like, if we didn't have this video, we wouldn't have been able to take him. But because we had this video, we traded up to get him because we're like, somebody's going to get this guy. And I was like, but you guys knew you were the only team that had that video. Like, there's, I mean, you have to, given that you guys saw six innings, there's a chance the Twins or the Rays got it. But they, you know, maybe they didn't. Maybe they don't have a good enough video system that they knew to look at it. Or maybe they only had one inning. Or maybe they had one of their pro scouts take it. And it was only one inning. Like they had to believe the Orioles. They were the only team that had this, but they were so sold on this guy. I mean, they were seeing a plus slider and at least an average changeup, uh, which I hedged on both of those grades on the on the website just because you know throw it for like ten innings total. So who knows if it's going to sustain? Right. Uh, but they were like it was righties, it was lefties. He was striking guys out with all three pitches. It was you know crazy stuff. So they trade up to like from I don't know the twentieth pick to the fourth pick to get him. Uh, and he apparently went to like a mini camp, uh, and through like some sort of side sessions. And they're like, the big league staff is in. Everybody loves him. We think he's going to stick. Uh, and I had him in the low 40 group for the Red Sox because they weren't really pushing him to me. And then I realized in retrospect, I think they knew nobody really got to see more than one inning of him at a time and they couldn't draft him. And so it seems like they were trying to not hype him and knew that they were going to be able to sneak him through. And then just happened to, unluckily, the Orioles had this video that they happened to be able to find and drafted him. And 
Now he went from a low 40 to a low 45, and by the end of the year, it could very easily be a 50, although he'll probably be, by the time he proves that, if that's what he is, he probably won't appear on next year's list. But, I mean, he could be a closer. Like, he's that good, <laughs> which is unbelievable that this guy was basically like a, you know, like a throwaway power arm that didn't know what he's doing that had elbow surgery like three months ago, and, and now he's like a vital cog in what the Warriors are trying to do because of that video. And the crazy part is if he only threw one or two innings in Sarasota, they may not have picked him. If he only threw – if he threw every inning against the Orioles but only threw them in Boston at their affiliate or their uh, complex, they wouldn't have been able to pick him. If he just happened to have a bad inning or two mixed in with that, they might not have been able to pick him. Like there's so many crazy little no margin for error parts of the story, uh, but it all lined up, and now the Orioles stole a guy from their – uh, from their uh, rivals, and it looks like he'll break camp with the team and he'll probably pitch in Boston pretty soon, which is unbelievable. Well, they should not look at any gift horses in their mouth, should they, Kyla McDaniel? And Oh, and the last part of that is if you want to say that the Red Sox were being clever, because it sounds like, I mean, if they, if they didn't get picked, it was a very clever way to handle it. Uh, but one, somebody from a third team pointed out, if the Red Sox were being clever – and were trying to sneak him through, which probably should have worked, then why did they protect Dan Butler? Like They did all of this to save a 40-man spot to protect Dan Butler, like a third catcher that's not very good, who they ended up DFAing when they signed Craig Breslow. Like, that was the reason to sneak him through, was to save that spot, which they did nothing with. Like, if if you know exactly how good he is, and that's the, the benefit, is to keep a third or fourth catcher on for an extra month, like that's not worth it. So yeah. the implication is they didn't maybe quite know what they have, uh, which seems amazing given how uh, excited Baltimore was, but different strokes for different folks, I guess. Every, well, everybody yeah. sees something different when looking at the same thing. Given the arrangement of facts, it will be uh, – I mean it's not – it's probably not uh, – probably fair to say it's not the number one storyline entering the 2015 season, <laughs> but uh, – for who people, cares about A-Rod? How's Jason Garcia doing? For people who uh, who take some pleasure in these um, smaller – and I would say this is sort of a more compelling story. All the, the pieces uh, – it is interesting. Uh, I – Kyle McDaniel. Uh, my presence is requested by people who will hurt me if I do not make my presence uh, – you, you probably uh, shouldn't have closed the podcast with, Kylie, talk on for an indeterminable amount of time. <laughs> no, I shouldn't have done that. I'm not very good at my job. So let's, uh, we all agree. We'll all agree to agree on that point. Uh, but thank you very much, Kyle McDaniel. I'm the lead prospect analyst. That's Kyle McDaniel. He's the lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.